Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to Brooklands. Um, sorry about the temperature, I was going to say a very warm welcome, but a bit of a pun. A special welcome to our guests this evening. Um, and once again, thank you all for supporting the Trust. Um, I've had the honour and privilege to organise and host these talks for the last four years. Seems like 40, but it's only four. There's one name that has been at the top of my list, and that name is on the top of your list and hasn't gone away ever since I started. So, will you please give a very warm welcome to Tony Brooks and Simon Taylor. Ladies and gentlemen, I think it's fair to say that the Great Britain produced three great Grand Prix drivers in the 1950s. Sterling Moss, Mike Hawthorne, and Tony Brooks. Now in these days of worldwide TV audiences and million dollar retainers and endless media conferences, this man would be as famous as Lewis Hamilton or Jensen Button. But I don't think he would have enjoyed it much. Tony has always been a man to let his performances on the track do the talking. So we're very honoured that he's agreed to come and spend the first evening with us, with Pina, uh, a sportswoman herself. She was an international basketball player before she married Tony. And they've been together, I should point out, for 58 years. Now, for the most Now, because Tony is much too modest to recite the statistics of his career, I just scribbled down a few of them. In 1958, in his, in, I'm sorry, in 1955, in his first Formula One race, I think his first single-seater race, he scored the first Grand Prix victory by a British driver in a British car since 1924. In his second World Championship Grand Prix, he finished second. In his third World Championship Grand Prix, he won. During his three seasons with Van Wall and with Ferrari, he won 50% of the Grand Prix that he finished. And I think I'm right in saying that during the 1950s, only Fangio, Ascari and Moss won more Grand Prix. It's amazing to realise it, but Tony's win at the British Grand Prix at Aintree in 1957, shared with Sterling Moss and the Van Wall, that's 60 years ago, uh, next month, so that's something we should draw a quick pint for. That win in 1957 in the British Grand Prix was the first ever win in a World Championship Grand Prix by a British car. And then when Van Wall withdrew, Tony was immediately hired as the number one at Ferrari. Well, Tony, you've always been a modest man. You've never made a fuss about your achievements. <clears throat> do, you, do you sometimes feel that you've never really had the recognition that you deserve for your motor racing achievements? No, not at all. Um, I enjoyed uh, motor racing up to no satisfaction out of it, and uh, um, uh, you know, the, uh, I'm always prepared to be judged by uh, my results. You know, and uh, I never had the uh, ambition of trying to sort of uh, publicise myself with the idea of sort of turning it into. Uh, into um, monetary return, 
um, we got uh, we got um, we got uh, prize money, we got some retainers in those days, but uh, um, I'm probably overstating uh, their value when I said they're peanuts compared with today. Um, and I was never interested. I mean, Sterling was a, a professional, uh, uh, you know, he, uh, from uh, beginning to end, and um, that was his life. And I think, uh, you know, I think weather racing uh, was was his life in in, in, in in many many ways. Uh, but um, uh, he um, uh, so he maximised his publicity, which is necessary. And uh, as a result, of course, he was still. Known worldwide as, uh, as much, I think almost as much as when he was uh, performing and, uh, and winning Grand Prix. But um, uh, no, I'm perfectly happy and uh, um, I'm extremely, oh my, well, I must know we do it, but um, you, you've just given me a very good uh, introduction and uh, <coughs> that is satisfaction in itself. And uh, 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 so, the short answer to your question, which I would. Uh, Managed to uh, lengthen quite a bit. Is, uh, no, I hope no. Never worry about uh, not being receiving more publicity. Well, you, you say that. <coughs> excuse me. You say that Sterling Moss was always a professional. In your case, you are actually going to be a dentist. Yes. You never intended to be a, a, a yes. racing driver. Yeah. Um, you, you started off just doing it for fun. I'm going to press yeah. this magic device here. If it works. We shouldn't be able to see. No, not yet, but I'll keep trying. There we go. There is your first racing car. Yes. That is Edith Silverstone, which was yes. uh, very much a road going sports car. Yes. And I think while you were racing that, you were busy studying to be a dentist. Yes, I was. Before I um, answer that question, I should perhaps have uh, clarified my previous answer, and that is that uh, although I was never uh, professional like Sterling in, the in, terms, of, in the terms of making uh, motor, motor racing my life, uh, behind the wheel um, I was as totally committed mm. as anybody else because uh, uh, your life was on the line, particularly in the 1950s. So uh, I was totally professional behind the wheel, mm. but when I got out of the car I was, you know, Tony Rooks and uh, just enjoying the, uh, the environment. Um, but um, coming back to your question, yes, it was my um, my mother's Edith Silverstone there. And it's your mother's. My, yes, my mother's Edith Silverstone. So did you always take your hands off Well, yes, to start with, she had a TCMG, you see, and uh, that was very suitable for club motor racing. So uh, um, I um, bought a book called um, by Charles Mortimer mm. about racing at Edith Silverstone, and I read this book, and I thought, oh, this. Uh, this sounds, uh, you know, very good and uh, the ideal car. And um, I got, uh, I got my father and mother to read this book, and uh, <laughs> sort of, uh, plowed through it and so on. And uh, anyway, by the constant drip approach, I managed to suggest that I change a TCMG for a for a Hilly Silverstone. And uh, we actually found this one. I say found in an advert. Uh, it was in the West Country. And um, I think um, we paid, I think, uh, £700 for it. And um, I sold my motorbike. And uh, uh, with a bit of help from uh, you know who, uh, we managed to find the £700 and uh, buy this car. And my mother was such a tremendous sport because, uh, as you see, it was not exactly uh, 
an ideal car for shopping. <laughs> so she, uh, she yeah, totally accepted the, uh, the exchange of a lot of TCMG with other cars. It was the first car I ever drove, had a beautiful gearbox. And um, she very sportingly agreed to swapping her TCMG for, for that car. So two and a half litre Riley engine. And um, of course, uh, one of the things that helped me to sell the car to uh, the idea to my father and mother was that uh, I had this book which showed how reliable it had been and uh, you know, he gave some expenses and so on. So it was, you know, we weren't getting uh, out of our debts or anything like that. It was a reasonable car. In fact, an ideal car mm -hmm. for truck motorways. It wasn't fast enough, but it was fast enough for me to get the uh, feel about motor racing. Well, you attracted enough attention to be able to be um, lent by, um, is it, it going to come up? Yes, there it is. Um, yeah. You've there got, oh, sorry, I've overpressed it. There we go. Two examples yes. of the lovely Fraser National Law replica. Yes. Uh, and I think you're on the outside. You can say you're overtaking uh, around the outside. Yes. Yes, um, I think that's right. Yes. And that was obviously a much quicker car, a much more. Yes, it was. Well, uh, we were very fortunate uh, because, uh, uh, of course, in those days the club meetings were really, really friendly. You know, club meetings, not like so called club meetings today. Uh, <laughs> um, or some club meetings today, probably too sweet. And, um, so we, you get to know everybody, you know, if you had a problem with somebody with them, then you were there to order this and that and the other. So I got to know a family called um, Healy, uh, uh, father and son, it was Arthur Healy and, um, uh, oh, gee, I've got the, the son's Christian name, that's very bad. Um, anyway, it was a Healy family, so it's H-E-L-Y, funnily enough, and I got to know them very well, and uh, uh, his son, had a Healy Silverstone as well, so the father had a Franklin Ashton, the son had the Healy Silverstone. And uh, obviously, uh, uh, we had an awful lot in common, we got to know each other very well. And Mr. Healy, Arthur Healy, yes, very kindly uh, invited me to try his car. And um, so uh, once I started to drive his car, he thought, you know, he stopped driving himself. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was a, a tremendous step up uh, for me in my directory, because that was fast enough to uh, uh, to win, uh, you know, five lap, ten lap races. And you attracted enough attention to be put into a works Fraser Nash, or the second car, yeah. uh, at the Goodwood chicane, yeah. chasing what looks to be like a Lotus Bristol, Lotus 10, probably. No, I think it's a Lotus, yes. So, uh, it might even be, um, uh, oh, yes. Now, you... There you are in a works, that's yeah. the works mark two, yeah. the old replica. Yeah. Did Fraser Nash, did the Altington brothers actually pay you any money or did uh, they just no, say? No, they didn't. To be honest, <laughs> no, the car was not as well prepared as a Healy car. It was a great disappointment. To really? Yeah. yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it looks so, so different, you know, and they take the weight off here and weight off there. So, um, it wasn't a good car, right, to be honest, and um, I think they probably had a little bit more power than the, uh, the uh, Healy car. But um, you did then race, did you not, Fraser Ash at the Dundrod race? Yes, that must have been yes, the first. Absolutely, yes, but that was a private car. That was uh, uh, Stoop, I think, brought to uh, Dickie Stoop's. Dickie Stoop, I think. Um, or, no, it was another gentleman. But they said they were two friends together. And uh, I think it was entered in the name of the works, but it's actually a, a private car. But Dundrod must have been 
quite a step up for you because that was a narrow, fast Irish road circuit. Yes, Just Irish lanes, really. Yes. Nothing like racing around uh, developed aerodrome circuits like Silverstone. No, no, exactly true. Uh, I found it much more um, interesting, more fascinating. I mean, it was real road, road, road racing. Uh, but the thing is, um, is, I never drove the car, drove the car with the idea of, um, of finishing off the circuit. So whether in fact it was a, uh, a grass and uh, a white line, or whether it was a, a brick wall, it never made any difference to me. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, it didn't have any impact on me. I just enjoyed it that much more because uh, it, was, um, it was a great challenge. Well, now, your performance in that Fraser Nash uh, attracted the attention of John Wire, and you found yourself with a works drive for Aston Martin. But what I want to move on to now is this story which, if you read it in a bad motor racing novel, you wouldn't really believe it. Here is this dental surgeon who is run right up the hospital where he's working by the head of the Connaught Formula One team and asked if you could get the next weekend off from your medical work yeah. to go to southern Italy yeah. and drive in your first yeah. Formula One race. Actually, yeah. I think your first single-seater race. Well, it's the first time I ever sat in a Formula One car was at Syracuse, in fact. <laughs> and I think when you got there, you, you, you had to take various aeroplanes yes. to get there. Yes. You, were, you were on the planes for eight hours. Yes. And is it right that you were sitting on these rather noisy, slow aeroplanes with your dental studies on your lap, studying yes. for your next dental exam? Oh, certainly, yes. I didn't want to waste any time because uh, um, I, I, the uh, principal of the dental college took a, a very good view, uh, or a very encouraging view, I should say, of my involvement. But um, I didn't want to prejudice um, his goodwill by in any way falling behind in my dental studies. So maybe you know, maybe I studied a lot harder and did a lot better than I would have done if I wasn't motor racing, if you understand. Um, so um, uh, yes, I did. I didn't want to waste any, any time because I suppose there's a, a slight guilt uh, complex there that I shouldn't really be at uh, home with the dental hospital. Uh, but um, So I did manage to work them in between um, <coughs> motor racing commitments in between my um, dental uh, commitments. But I was fortunate in that um, as you progress, it was a five and a half year course, you know, we did, um, uh, we did quite a few, a few years of the, um, the, the medical course, uh, plus our own subjects. Um, so it was five and a half years. But I was fortunate in that um, as my motor racing proceeded, um, so I moved further on in my, in my studies, and the more mature you were uh, uh, regarded to be, and therefore the more you trusted, or trusted, you know, if you missed the lecture, it wasn't going to be the end of the world, and you're going to catch up with your friends' notes and so on and so forth. And uh, when I got to the stage, you see, when I was uh, racing Goodwood, it was, um, uh, it was just um, a Saturday, and uh, we would drive down on Friday night and stay at a bed and breakfast at uh, Bulgaria's, my father and I, occasionally my, my brother Paul. And um, so it was, um, I was only lo losing, um, uh, well, probably less than half a day, the Friday. Uh, we would drive down on the Friday, Friday night, Friday evening, Friday night, and race on the Saturday, and um, uh, drive back.
so um, we just have one about the breakfast and then one the readers and uh, be back. So um, then when I started to uh, get more involved and needed more, more time off, you know, um, I was at the stage where, at the clinical stage, where I could organise my appointments and so on and so forth to, uh, to fit in with the slightly extra time I needed. So in that sense, my progression in the motivating world coincided quite nicely with my progression in the, in the mental world. So I was well, fortunate in that respect. Let's, let's talk about Syracuse. I think you got there after this slightly grueling um, trip to find that this car that you never sat in, which you were expected to race against the works of Azaratus and so on in the Sunday, hadn't arrived. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so w when it finally did arrive, yeah. I mean, you barely had time to find out where the pedals were before you were on the track for practice. Well, well, well that is true. But the uh, mechanics, the, uh, the team was, was run by uh, Mike Oliver there. Uh, he, he was in charge of the team and he, he was uh, having kittens, you know, when they didn't uh, arrive, as you can imagine, because he was coming down in, uh, uh, in his own car and, uh, of course, the mechanics were in their car, uh, their uh, truck. And, uh, of course, he was being put through it. And um, that's, anyway, the eventualists uh, arrived at uh, Syracuse and um, they did a fantastic job of repairing that car. It was absolutely immaculate. Although they, uh, I forget how many it's all in the, in the book, but um, I, I don't know how many days they spent, but it was ages and ages and ages. And in fact, they had a problem with the customs where initially when they got into France or into Belgium, I think it was. So they lost days there arguing with the, with, uh, uh, with the customs. And unfortunately, there was one mechanic who I think had a mother who was French and he managed to sort of make smooth them down and get them through. So anyway, they eventually arrived and um, well, they made up for the lost time. They prepared the car immaculately. Uh, is uh, beautifully polished and uh, it, could be possibly, it couldn't possibly be any complaint about the condition of the car. But you had to learn the circuit yes. and learn the car yes. when you went out and practice. Yes. And you qualified, I think, on the front row. Yeah, yes, uh, yes, that's right. Yes. Well, um, uh, yes, you know, we, we made the best of the at the time, uh, the practice time we had, I think... Uh, I, I, I told you he was a modest man. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, I told you right, so I think um, I, I um, had a, a, a very slow spin, actually, on one corner, and one into the, into the, um, into the pit straight. And, um, but it was, um, uh, it was a very, very slow one. No, I guess there was some oil put down, but um, I, I, I didn't uh, spot it. So, that was the only sort of slight blemish, but I didn't touch anything. It was very slow, very, one of these very slow, uh, uh, not even a spin. Well, um, move, moving on then to the race. Yes. You won the race. Yes. The most surprised person was me, <laughs> followed by the journalists, and um, followed by a, a very uh, sympathetic, well, sympathetic, very extraordinary. Um, Spectators, because they had come here there to expect the uh, the Maserati team to uh, run away with everything. Because uh, uh, after Mercedes, after Mercedes, um, Maserati was the team to beat at that time. Sure. And Mercedes had, uh, had just retired, I think, a few weeks beforehand. And I think uh, the Sicilians and the, uh, the, uh, the people from mainland Italy had come to uh, to you know encourage and applaud. Uh, 
Maserati and Walker. And, and amazingly enough, they um, they took uh, they took very well the situation and uh, they were very encouraging, very enthusiastic. And uh, uh, in actual uh, uh, fact, I'd, I was moving around. I learned the circuit. I should have mentioned this. Uh, I learned the circuit on the Vespa. sense of which way, uh, you know, what was coming up next, but uh, you couldn't learn it in a, in a racing sense, but at least if you knew which way the, the road was going was a start. And um, so I've been moving around on this Vespa, and uh, when I won the race, I was a little bit overwhelmed, you know, because people have people, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, excited and uh, congratulating and beating me on the back and that sort of thing. And I thought, well, oh my goodness, you know, this was completely new to me. And, uh, my first thought was I wanted to get away and uh, into the hotel room and have a nice, uh, nice shower. So uh, uh, the first thing was I dashed to uh, the back of the uh, uh, where I'd left the scooter, and, um, and it was still there, so that was a good start. <laughs> <laughs> um, before I came out to um, to Syracuse, I had a, a crown, the other left crown, uh, replaced, and uh, I'd had a temporary one uh, put in. Uh, which uh, was, uh, you know, only temporary. So um, I've been uh, doing an awful lot of uh, kilometres on this scooter, as you can imagine, trying to learn this circuit. And um, to the point where I got a really red raw uh, in uh, inner uh, aspect of my first finger and my thumb. That must have been this one. Uh, and um, it was red raw, and I had taken to uh, having to bind it with um, with handkerchief, you know, so that it didn't get even more raw. So I put my handkerchief around here, by the scooter, by the scooter, ready to dive off, and I put it around here, I put it like this, and what you do, you put it in here, and you tighten it like that, don't you? <laughs> so, my, my temporary crown finished on the floor. So there I was with all these uh, enthusiastic, Italian, so I ground me, you know, sort of, uh, and I was desperately trying to find this, uh, this tooth on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to step back because I didn't want to lose this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this crown. But anyway, it was too late and uh, I never found it. And, um, uh, so, that was um, an extraordinary introduction to the world of international problems. Well, that's right, yes, a real, real star performance. <laughs> well, when you got back to England, and, and this was, as I said in the introduction, the first time that a British driver and a British car had won a race called a Grand Prix. Because remember, there wasn't just the World Championship Grand Prix in those days. There were also significant races elsewhere around Europe called Grand Prix. It was the first time that a British car and a British driver had won uh, a Grand Prix since 1924. So it was making the headlines by the time you got home you suddenly found to your surprise and probably not to your pleasure you were a famous man and then the offers started to come in and there's so much we can talk about I mean, you know, just briefly um, you accepted a Formula 1 drive with BRM and that was one of the, 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 your uh, race at Silverstone for BRM was one of the two races you say in your uh, career when you didn't follow your own rule of always racing a car that you knew was mechanically 
Yes, it should be. Mm. Just tell us about the, the, the Silverstone accident with the VRF. Yes. Well, uh, before I come to that, um, and the bills of my win at Syracuse, I was offered um, Connell, of course, wanted to drive for them, and it might, have, uh, it might appear um, ungrateful of myself not to go to Connell. But the trouble is, the car was very basically unreliable, and um, you know, it hadn't been going very well. It had a wonderful chassis, wonderful brakes, but what it was short of was an engine. And the engine it had was um, a two litre, I'm sorry, perhaps I'm leaving one way. Um, uh, it's a two and a half, it was a two litre ultra engine from before the war, which is born and born out to two and a half litre. And it didn't have enough power, and it was unreliable. And in fact, for most of the race, I was you know, using less than maximum reps. Um, and um, so, a great chassis, great brakes, but the basic problem was the, was the engine. And um, so that's why I didn't feel that it would have been right to, to go to, uh, to Connell. Unfortunately, subsequently, they didn't do very well because they didn't have the car. Oddly enough, Connell Clarence had an ideal two and a half litre engine, but for some reason, they never released it. Mm. And I, I think if, uh, if Connell had been able to get that two and a half litre engine, you know, it could have been a very different story for them. Mm. But anyway, that's part of my. Um, Rob Walker also offered me a drive because he had a, a Connaught, and the third offer was, uh, was BRM. And um, it's, uh, it's they, they never uh, they never got that car anywhere near right. Um, it would never drift. The engine was good. In the straight line had good good performance, good acceleration, uh, which is why uh, Mike and I led the Mike Hawthorne and I led the Grand British Grand Prix uh, for you know the first four or five laps, I think it was, because we had a good uh, straight line performance um, off the line, and, uh, but it, it could never drift the car. So anyway, in the race, um, the, um, the accelerator linkage broke, and um, I stopped at uh, Stoke Corner, and uh, um, somebody helped me to, um, uh, to lash up a connection, and I managed to get the car back to the pits. Is, is it right that you actually borrowed his fountain pen? And used um, his pen or his pen. I don't know. I, I can't. I'm not. I can't. I can't verify that. But I had. I had some help. This I is what some unreliable journalist wrote. Trying to uh, yes, gloss uh, it up a bit. But uh, I don't remember that. I have to say. But um, anyway, we got it back to the pits, and uh, then they did what they thought was a, an adequate repair, and I lost about. Uh, oh, I don't know. Nine lots. I mean. All I can do now, bearing in mind that the only performance I'd given that in the game I might have something uh, uh, Grand Prix capability was at Syracuse, which is a one-off. And I think it was in, in July and Syracuse was at Taylor. So I thought, well, I can't get anywhere in this race because, uh, as I say, nine laps or something, I was in the pits. But I thought what I can do is try and demonstrate that I can drive a car quickly. But anyway, when I got back in the race, this uh, job they'd done on the accelerator uh, was that it was beginning to, it was sticking on um, uh, outside the corners, it wasn't coming off straight away. Uh, 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 so corner I'd be taken flat, um, uh, flat out. Uh, but of course in the nine laps I'd been in the pits, some more rubber and oil had been uh, deposited. So, uh, but anyway, I came to Stowe, bearing in mind I was trying to demonstrate that, you know, Syracuse, Syracuse wasn't a, a fluky one-off, 
and uh, I thought, well, this is flat. So I went into it flat. So all I needed was just a quick, quick like that. Uh, it would have been sufficient because if the accelerator waiting working uh, properly, um, it wouldn't have been a problem. So, um, uh, but it didn't come off. With any decent handling car, all I would have to have done would have been to go along the, the grass verge, you know, for 50 yards or so, and, and edge back onto the road. But immediately, anything untoward happened to that car, you know, completely out of control. So it span around and uh, uh, finished up on the uh, outside of the circuit and uh, turned over and threw me out. Uh, and um, the only decent thing it did was it at least deposited me on the grass rather than on the, uh, on the car macadam. And also, it recognised the error of its ways and set itself on fire. <laughs> Syracuse Grand Prix in the cold. And just to bring it up to date, I think we've all set up a picture of Tony driving the same car um, in a demonstration of Goodwood Revival. And a very pretty car, I always thought, the Cobalt, yes. and beautifully turned out, of course. Yes. But now we're going to move on from BRM because you moved on in 1957 to Van uh, but you also, in those days, Formula One drivers liked to work every weekend. And so not only were you a works driver for, for Van Wall in Formula One, you were also a works driver for Aston Martin yes. in sports car racing, yes. in which you were very successful. But the British Grand Prix in 1957, it was at Aintree, and it came what, three weeks, four weeks after the Le Mans 24 yes, hours, right, yes. when you've been driving for Aston Martin. Yes. And that was the other of the two occasions yes. when you broke your own rule Absolutely. about not driving a car that wasn't properly set up. So tell us yeah. about Le Mans. Well, you mentioned the rule. I didn't mention the rule uh, because I thought it would come up about, um, about, Aston, about um, the Le Mans. But BRM was the first regulator, the first rule. Indeed. The first thing I said, look, you were a lunatic. You know, that car wasn't fit to drive, and uh, uh, it was only a question of really cruising down around and finishing. But you see, I was so intent on trying to show that Syracuse wasn't just a one off, and that, that you know, that was actually a lunacy. So I said, look, don't do this, uh, this again. Uh, driving a car which is not fit to be driven at the limit of its normal capability. Uh, so at uh, 57 uh, at uh, Le Mans, um, I was driving with Noel Cunningham Reed, and he was a very, very good driver. We won over a thousand kilometres together. Um, and uh, he brought it in about three o'clock in the morning, and uh, we were in second place. And he said that, um, you know, it was stuck in fourth gear. And I thought, well, okay, that's exactly what I had at uh, uh, Spa uh, a few weeks before, and uh, I managed to. Uh, get it out of gear and, and won the race. So I thought, uh, clever dogs, uh, I can do this again. So I got the car out of the uh, out of the pits, you know, having to set the clutch because obviously stuck in sucking the top top gear. Anyway, got it out and uh, the pits. And um, the first straight I came to after the pits, as a sort of a right 
and then a left and then a right, and then a short straight to Tetru, not Tetru, 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 into the straight. Sure. Uh, there's a very short straight there. <laughs> and um, so, well, this is, you know, and this is three o'clock in the morning, lying in second place, don't want to stop, you know, but dropping around the field, you know, uh, uh, and I must get this out of gear, out of form gear, as soon as I possibly can. First straight that comes along, I have to do it here, I have to do it here. So what I was doing was um, accelerating hard um, and, um, and then um, pressing the clutch and then trying to, when I lift, I lift it hard and then off, and as I pulled the, my foot off the accelerator, I was simultaneously uh, trying to pull the gear lever out or even the other way, I think, no, I can't remember, to pull it out of fourth gear into fifth gear. I was synchronizing hard acceleration, hard pull on the gear lever to try and pull it out. And of course, and then I was doing the first thing that you are told, or one of the first things you are told when you start to drive, is don't ever look down on the gear lever. So what was I doing? I was looking down on the gear lever. And you were accelerating, boom, accelerating, boom. And uh, then I looked up and I passed my braking point. <laughs> Mistake number one. Mistake number two was that um, I tried to get round the corner, and in fact I put it on a perfectly good line, although I'm going too quickly, on a perfectly good line in a drift, in a drift, and you know, on the clip the apex quite correctly, and on the exit, unfortunately, on the exit, the sand, which they use outside Tech Rouge, came literally down to the edge of the road. There was no grass verge, nothing. Just sand right to the edge of the road. So I finished the pier, went uh, drift wide, and then uh, started running up the bank like that. And of course, uh, it was uh, uh, never designed to do um, rallies, so uh, the Aston Martin uh, flipped over like that and trapped me in underneath. And um, uh, so there I was lying underneath this car at 3 o'clock in the morning, darkness, but nobody could see me because I was round the corner past the apex in any case. So um, I thought, well, the, was it going to be a straight uh, run over job or was I going to be uh, 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 cremated, you know? Uh, <laughs> uh, one or the other it could have been. Anyway, um, fortunately, um, uh, Italian driver came around, his name escapes me just at the moment, a lovely nice guy. Um, and um, he got, came around and he, my, uh, his Aston Martin was, was that was the, uh, uh, that was the sandbank, and the Aston Martin was like this, so my tail was sticking out into the road. And he came around the bend and just kept it uh, far enough out to just clip the back of my car, clip the back of my Aston Martin which tipped it off me and it allowed me to get up and, um, uh, from underneath the car and run up the, uh, the sandbank, and I don't know, run, uh, scramble up the, the, the sandbank and uh, uh, collapse into the hands of an astonished um, uh, flag marshal. So I was extremely lucky there and um, I wish I could remember the name, the wonderful chap who, uh, unfortunately he had to retire and I apologise profusely to him. Horse driver. Um, it was very well known. Anyway, um, so I, you know, I was very thankful to him to say the very least, and I thanked him afterwards and apologised to him, causing him to retire. Well, um, that's going to bring us to this picture here because 
you, you did hurt yourself at Clermont. Well, yes, may I come before I come to that? May I just explain that this was following up from what I said. This is my second, mm. my second decision, my second experience, which said you don't ever, ever, ever try and race a car at its maximum performance if it's not fit to race. Mm. So this was, you know, this was a convincing number two. But <clears throat> you see, funnily enough, neither were a driving accident. They were stupidities. I should not have. I should have recognised that BRM was, you know, not fit to drive uh, mm. fast. And I should have recognised that you know, you know, you don't mess about with a gear lever and uh, miss the braking point. So they weren't driving errors as such. Mm. They weren't, you know, uh, mistake in mm. the decision. It was a, a, a thick old uh, mistake. Yeah. <laughs> well, <coughs> we're going to. Um, there's so much of your career we can talk about, and we're going to have to compress bits of it. But we are going to come uh, to uh, the race of America, where many of us believe you could well have been the 1959 world yeah. champion, yeah. except you decided to yeah. exercise your rule. Yes. But let's come back from the on. Yeah. You did bash yourself around quite badly in that yes. accident. Yeah. We get to the British Grand Prix. Yeah which was held in entry that year. Yes. You see all the traditional grandstands yes. on the left of the picture for yes. the horse racing track. Yeah. And Van Wall, it was really a kind of battle between the Van Walls and the Ferraris yes. that season. Yes. And you and Sterling Moss... And Maserati. Maserati too. Yeah. You and Sterling Moss were in the works Van Walls. Yes. And you both practised, even though you weren't physically at your yes. best. I think you... Um, almost equal Sterling's pole position time. I think you were a fifth of a second slower or something. Yes, I equal the, the lap record and um, Sterling was, yes, it was two, fifths, two, two tenths of a second between us in, the, in his car. Yeah. So obviously, <coughs> despite um, the fact that you were still really not recovered from that accident, you, you were absolutely as quick. The race started, Sterling was leading, I think you were running in second or third place, mm -hmm. and then Sterling's car hit trouble, yeah. and so he had to come in and stop in the pits. Yes. Now, how did it work that you, did you take the decision to stop, were you feeling that your injuries were hurting you too much, or no, did you then stop? No, it was pre-arranged, you see, that um, the reason, I mean, I, I, you know, I shouldn't really have been allowed to stop the race, I wasn't fit to stop the race, I, I was in bed until um, uh, the Tuesday before the, the practicing started on the Thursday. The first time I drove the car after the Monarchs, and it was uh, my father's car to go to uh, to go to Aintree. Um, and um, I lost, uh, I don't know, an awful lot of weight as a result of this uh, this accident. Um, and um, uh, obviously, as I say, I, I managed to bundle them and got my way through the so-called medical, I mean, uh, <laughs> as, as they were in those days. And um, well, I shouldn't really have been allowed to race. Uh, uh, obviously, if we're going to start three cars, there's a better chance of, uh, of, of uh, being successful than if you start two. Mm. So it's deciding, although I'd say uh, I managed to get uh, permission to start, um, I um, uh, I decided that um, although I, you know, was as fast as ever, I couldn't do uh, 
I couldn't do 90 laps in a competitive race because I just wanted to die. I'd run it all over me uh, to protect me in the, in the cockpit. Um, so it was clear I couldn't do a competitive 90 laps, which is what the race was. Um, so I agreed beforehand that if Sterling or Stewart had a problem with their cars, I would bring my car in and they would take over. So uh, that's so it wasn't decided in the race, it was decided beforehand. So they hung out a pit signal to yes. tell you that that's the right spot. Yeah. But what has always fascinated me is that you handed your car, your car which was healthy, over to Sterling, mm. uh, and Sterling got the lead back, and so between you, you won the race. Mm. Uh, in the same car, you started it, he yeah. finished it. But is it right that you then, despite the fact that you were in a lot of pain, you then got into Sterling's car, which hadn't been going particularly well, yeah. and you rejoined the race. Yes, that's correct, because, um, yeah, as I say, we were trying to, you know, if you have three cars running, you've got a better chance of, uh, of, of doing well, but because um, his, his was a misfiring problem, and, uh, you know, I'm sure as many people here have had the experience that sometimes misfires can kill themselves, not very often. So I thought, well, you know, I should give it a try in case it, uh, it does clear itself. And I, I, I did exactly that. And, um, but unfortunately it didn't uh, clear itself. And the problem, uh, the likelihood was I'm just going to bust an engine, which uh, the manual could, uh, could do without. Uh, well, nevertheless, <coughs> Sterling in the car that you started, there, there is yeah. the start, incidentally, yes. with, um, I think it's Sterling with the white ring round his air intake and yes. you, you in the van wall with the yellow. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Your, and, and who's in that Maserati? Who would that be? Yes. My, my, I'm on the left there because I've got the... Uh, and and Sterling's on the road. Yeah. It is Barrow, is it? Thank you very yes, much. Yes, it's Barrow. It's Barrow. Yeah. Right. Well, I uh, equal the fastest lap, equal the lap record. So we did the same time. He was in the centre because he did it before me. I see. But Sterling and I, Sterling was actually second slower when he tried my car, but he had a new car and he finished up with two tenths of a second faster in his car. But that was, you know, that was just practice and I say 90 laps I could not. Well, there, done, there you are in the car. That's in the car that you started, so that's the car that went on to win. Yes. Um, wonderful shot at entry. And if I can conjure up, there is the aftermath yes. with you and Sterling and the Winners' Cup. And of course, both of you showing this used to happen particularly in the Van Wall, as it did in the Mercedes. You all saw Sterling having what he said were his owl eyes. Yes. But both of you have yes. had so much oil and rubber coming out yes, of the right. front. Yes. Well, so it's also a brake lining, which is more worrying. Well, that was, as I said earlier, that was the first time that the British Grand Prix had been won by a British driver. And uh, it, that was a great day, really. For, we're all so used to Britain as they became uh, when we went to Cooper and to Lotus. Britain became the dominant force in uh, Grand Prix racing. Yes. But Van Wall, with 
Tony Vanderbilt's persistence and expenditure of huge sums of money. He was really um, in the vanguard yes. of the British motor racing industry. Yes. Indeed, indeed. Yes, it's, uh, oh, it's a tremendous uh, credit to uh, Tony Vanderbilt what he uh, what he achieved. Of course, it was that that was the first time that British car and drivers had won a world championship. Indeed, the first time that a British car and driver had won a Grand Prix was Syracuse. Yeah. Um, so, so you were responsible for both? Um, well, yes. But it, uh, <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote an article for, um, I think it was Motorsport, um, um, uh, and I handed it uh, jumping the second fence at Aintree. And they didn't use it, which rather ridiculously. Um, the second fence being, you know, absolutely from the uh, non World Championship event to yeah. Well, let's stay with Van Wall for a little while because we now move on to the next season, 1958, and um, that's a wonderful shot of Spa, Belgian Grand Prix in 1958, yes. with Moss and Brooks at the front. <coughs> you actually, in 1958, won three Grand Prix. You won that Belgian yeah. Grand Prix. <coughs> You won the German Grand Prix at the Nürburgring, which we're particularly yeah. going to talk about in a minute, and you won the Italian Grand Prix yeah. at Monza. Um, and I'm sure you all remember that 1958 was the year when uh, all the Formula One circus arrived for the final race of the year at Casablanca. They used to have a Grand Prix there on the northern African coast. And the situation was that if Sterling Moss in the Van could win and set fastest lap. And Mike Hawthorne finished no higher than third, Correct, yes. then Sterling would have been champion. Yes. Well, Sterling did what he had to do, and he won and set fastest lap. Tony was in second place, and sadly, and I think Hawthorne was in fourth, you yes. filled in the old Ferrari in third place. Yes. Sadly, your van wall failed. Yes. Hawthorne, of course, was then able under team orders. Don't know what Vettel would think about this, but um, <laughs> Hawthorne was able to be waved past by Phil Hill. He finished second. He won the yes. World Championship by one point. Yeah. But let's stick with that 1958 season because you really, I think that was your greatest year, wasn't it? And your, the German Grand Prix surely was your greatest race. Um, yes, I think that's correct. Yes. Um, you know, obviously, um, I only finished third in the World Championship in '58. Well, I was second in '59. So, uh, in well, terms of right. in terms of Grand Prix, yes, yeah, it was the best year. And of course, uh, I think that they were the two greatest races, really: Spa, Nürburgring, um, yes. and uh, Monza. So, I won the three. I think uh, the, the triple crown. I think absolutely. Yeah. Well, this shot. Um, with you with a thermos flask of, I don't know what might be in there, but this is when you have just won the German Grand Prix, yes. and Sterling, who had retired, yes. is wearing a rather dinky cardigan, complete <laughs> <laughs> with BRDC badge. Uh, but that race, uh, an extraordinary drive from you, because you came from behind. The two Ferraris of Peter Collins and Mike Hawthorne were leading. 
We're talking about the Nürburgring, yeah. 40 and a half miles round, yeah. surely the most demanding yes. Grand Prix circuit of all. Yeah. And I think you had to make, what, 20 seconds up on the Ferrari, something like that. Oh, I think it's more than that. I can't, without, um, without checking it up, it's more than that. But um, I caught them up at a, a better pace than Fangio had the, the year before, which really made the race for me. Uh, because um, it was, you know, the 50, 58 and 57, uh, they were a very similar situation. At, um, and that uh, Hawthorne and Collins mm. fighting against Fangio the previous year, and uh, Hawthorne and Collins fighting against Brooks in, in 58. And um, so I got the Irish Times, and uh, um, was, um, sorry, Maserati's Times, and uh, um, I compared them with, um, uh, with, with my own, and they, who is very, very, very encouraging. And um, so that's why I'm such a great circuit, you know, to. Uh, um, to um, you know, to be able to catch uh, and overtake my um, Peter, who were obviously two two great drivers, was uh, very very pleasing. And, um, Would you say that um, the Ferraris had more power than the Van Wall? They were quicker at straight line. You had to do all the work on the corners. Uh, 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 yes, that's right. Uh, we had devices of uh, disc brakes, but. Um, Although you've got to stop quite a lot on the Nürburgring, it's not continuous, you know. There wasn't a lot of, uh, they weren't getting up a lot of uh, speed between the corners. So we had devices on the, uh, on the disc brakes, but the, the Van Wall, uh, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't, uh, the Van Wall won the World Manufacturers Championship in 58, so it's, um, uh, I, I'm not, uh, what works, you know, if it works, don't fix it. But in actual fact, a stern will tell you, it was not an easy car to drive. Mm. It didn't really like to drift, you know. One managed to drift with some sort of it. Very, it had a very long and ponderous gear change, uh, but um, we managed to make it work. And it was, uh, you know, it won the world major chance. So that is what really matters. But it wasn't an easy car to drive, right? mm. and um, so uh, uh, the bizarre, the Maserati, the Ferrari had the advantage on the straight because I, I overtook them uh, more than once. Uh, you know, on the back sections, and then they just sailed by me on the uh, on the straight. And uh, my difficulty was trying to build up uh, a big enough lead on the on the back section uh, to, um, uh, to give them too much distance to overtake me on the straight. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is what we were trying to do. And uh, poor old Peter was trying. He'd seen how much I got pulled out, and Peter was trying to sort of close the gap on me. Um, you know, because he knew what was going to happen if he didn't close the gap. Were you able to? That was when he was just, you know. Did Did you see his accident in? You know, whereas you you moved too far. No, no. In in the, in the book, uh, it does. Uh, he was um, he was about uh, you know 20, 30 yards behind me, but I couldn't see it. I only knew something must have happened when I got into the straight because that's on the Nürburgring. There's not much time to look in the mirror. Sure. On the straight, obviously, you got some time. When he didn't appear in my mirror, I expected him to be in the mirrors on my tail, you know, and about to try and shoot past. But there's no sign of it. And uh, I thought the worst, but I mean, well, I didn't thought the worst. I thought, you know, he must have uh, had a mechanical failure or uh, an accident of some type. But of course, I had no idea that it was as serious as it turned well, out to I mean, be. There, there you are looking happy after the race because yeah, nobody knew. Um, in fact, Mike Hawthorne. 
who obviously was Peter's great friend, yes, um, his Ferrari failed, I think, on the same map. Yes. And he got a marshal to get on a field telephone. I mean, how incredible to think. There weren't even proper uh, communications back to the pits in those days. But he persuaded the marshal to uh, make some sort of contact with race control on the field telephone. was told that Peter Collins was bruised but okay. Yes. And I think that was why you were yes. able to look pretty happy. Oh, I know. Because you had no idea until much later that Collins had been killed. And there's also one on me um, with a, a wreath around my neck. I still didn't know. So at least I was able to enjoy the, the success of the race, you know, before uh, the truth came through, which was some time after uh, the race. And obviously, uh, I don't think anybody was in a big hurry to um, tell me about it. Uh, we, we, we ought to just mention this because it is always a source of astonishment to younger motor racing enthusiasts to comprehend that so many people got killed. I mean, that year, yes. three Formula One drivers died, yes. including your own teammate Stuart Lissettons at, at Casablanca. Yes. Yeah. Um, motor racing was enormously dangerous then. The tracks would have, sometimes like at uh, the Nürburgring, barbed wire beside the track. And there were all sorts of trees and buildings and all sorts of things to hit. No seat belts in the cars. The cars were much more fragile in yes. their construction. So you, who always wanted to make a rule not to drive a car that wasn't um, that mechanically right, yeah. you were obviously aware of the danger. You were obviously aware that your friends, who we might meet at breakfast, yes. wouldn't be around at dinner. Correct. How did that strike you? How did you deal with that? Well, the thing is that I drove up to the maximum of my ability. I never ever forced myself. I say my two accidents were stupidity, as I've already said, not driving errors. So I was confident that I was driving up to the limits of my ability and not beyond. And um, I never, like a certain person, so admitted to having to sort of close his eyes, you know, in order to take a, a corner flat uh, at Syracuse, um, uh, you know, in order, I would never, ever, ever do anything like that. I would drive it up to the limit of my capabilities, and that was it. And uh, hopefully it was fast enough in order to uh, win the race. So I was never contemplating that I would be overstepping the limit, but nevertheless, I accepted that circumstances could arise beyond my care, my uh, control. I mean, oil on the circuit was a very common problem in those days. Um, you go around a corner and somebody's, uh, you know, spun around and in the middle of the road. Um, and um, so there were circumstances like that beyond their control and you accepted that that was a possibility. But, you know, hopefully it was not a very high uh, that probability that you could be caught up in situation. The main thing was your own driving ability. If you drove up to the limits of your own capability, you know, uh, you minimise the chances of uh, you know, uh, an accident. The biggest problem is, of course, that because of the type of roads we were racing on in those days, uh, roads, uh, ordinary roads or roads made um, uh, very similar to them, um, you could come across anything as you were touched on earlier. You were entirely, any one mistake could be your last in those days because of the type of roads we were racing on. 
when you lose control, when you hit a, 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 a pole or a, a rolled over in a bush or even a telephone booth, um, that was entirely beyond your control. Once you lost it, so any one mistake could be fatal in those days because of the type of roads you were racing on. Well, that was 1958, <coughs> and there's Italy, excuse me, <coughs> with Mike Hawthorne congratulating you. Um, Mike Hawthorne, as we've said earlier, did win the World Championship that year by one point, but that was a great victory, one of those three, as Tony says, the triple crown of Spa, Bonobo, Green and Monza, fought him all in one year. Um, Mike Hawthorne retired after winning the World Championship that year and, as we all know, tragically died in January in a road accident. But is it true that when he decided to retire, he said to you, Tony, you ought to retire too, you're married to Pina now, why don't you stop? Well, in fact, he said this to uh, Pina, where is Pina? She's right there, she's there, yeah. Uh, because um, she said, yes, we're right um, I think there's a BLDC dinner in London, wasn't it? And uh, um, uh, Mike, you, were, you came across him in the corridor, I think. Um, yeah. And um, uh, that was when, when Mike uh, said to you, and he never actually said it to me, he said it to, to, to Pete, and he said, you know, really, uh, this is, of course, after Peter's death, um, you know, really, you know, ten years ought to give up. Uh, Motor racing, you know, it's much too dangerous uh, these days. But I don't, don't recall him ever actually saying to me, but it was a, a, a definite view, yes. yes. Well, let's now, that Mike moves us neatly into the 1959 season because you always loved, I think, racing yes. a British car. You were patriotic as racing drivers were in those days. Yes. But Van Wall withdrew. Yes. And instantly, Ferrari wanted you to become the number one driver. Yes. And there you are in Portugal. Yes. In the Ferrari. Yes. Uh, you actually won uh, the French Grand Prix at Reims, and we saw a little clip of that earlier on. Yes. Um, but you also won, won the German Grand Prix the year it was at Arvus. We have yes. a picture of it, unfortunately. That's right. But that was on. That ferocious yes, banking. That's right. Banking. Yes. I mean, we can talk about banking here because, of course, we're at Brooklyn's. But the Arvis race was pretty terrifying. Two yes. lengths of Arjuban yes. yes. with an enormous banking yes. uh, at the end. Yes. Was that a completely different race to what you were used to? Did it require a different technique? Well, yes. It, it, well, I don't know a different technique, but it was a, you know, a very different race. and. Uh, and the, um, the geometry of the, of the back uh, corner was, um, was not right. In other words, um, uh, you know, the angle, the curvature and the angle were not related, you see. So if they were related correctly, you should be able to go around beautifully at a, you know, a constant speed and, uh, and uh, you know, you'd be feeling pretty good about it. But um, uh, somebody did some work on it and, uh, uh, and um, because the, see, the angle of the, of the banking, or the sharpness of the, of the corner in relation to the angle of the banking, there is a relationship that you get a balance whereby it can be much easier to drive that corner if you get those two related correctly. Somebody did that, I don't know, uh, mm -hmm. some uh, electrician, I suppose. 
Um, and, um, and that hadn't been done properly. So um, uh, you really had to um, uh, watch it. You were drifting round there, much, much of that uh, corner. Mm. And um, it's, uh, of course, uh, Paul Bearer uh, lost his life, John Bearer lost his life in the sports car race yes, the day before when uh, it was wet. And it was wet, the circuit was wet uh, just before the Grand Prix. So um, uh, we were you know, not exactly looking forward to the situation, but uh, it mostly dried out before they actually uh, uh, dropped the starter's flag. And, um, but um, I don't think a particularly different technique um, other than trying to, I suppose, uh, trying to cope with the fact that this was a, a peculiar corner and doesn't uh, didn't quite uh, respond uh, as you uh, would normally expect a corner to respond. Mm -hmm. What about the differences between Van Wall, which was very British, and you had three yes. British drivers, yeah. um, totally a British team, who then went to Scuderia Ferrari. Mm -hmm. um, I think you said once you had Mr. Vanderbilt coming to every race with his yes. white straw yes. hat, That's right. always there. Yes. Enzo Ferrari never turned up. Never. Just came sometimes to practice at Monza. Well, Monza, Monza, yeah. to my mind. Yes. Yeah. What about the atmosphere within the team? How, how did it differ between Van Wall and Ferrari? Well, uh, Van Wall were, were very professional, but very British. Uh, <laughs> and the Ferrari were, um, yeah, they were professional, but not not quite as uh, tight, tightly run as the, the Van Wall team. But um, uh, but they uh, they raced with their hearts, and um, their reaction was was noticeably more uh, uh, warm, enthusiastic, and dare one say Italian uh, than um, you know than most people. Um, so they were both two very, very professional teams. Uh, but that um, one was a slightly tighter ship, uh, rather tighter ship. And uh, you, well, you, you know, they were very enthusiastic when you won. You know, but uh, the Italians would be that much. Yeah. Sure, sure. Or, uh, uh, I, I, you might say over the top. But, uh, and, and driving a Ferrari at Monza yes. in front of that crowd must be yes. quite something. Well, yes. But, yeah, I drove it. Practice, you see. I mean, that uh, was where I lost uh, one of the play three places I lost the, uh, the World Championship in '59. Um, I only drove Ferrari in practice there, and uh, I think I was um, uh, pole next to Sterling on the, on the starting line. I think two tenths of a second, I think it was, maybe one tenth of a second slower than Sterling. And, um, you know, great looking forward to the race. But um, I don't know if I want to get into this, but uh, they. Um, at the end of practice, which I said the only time I drove a Ferrari around was at Trafalgar, the adoring crowd, was um, uh, was uh, the well, at the end of that practice I um, commented and this was a comment I wish I'd never ever made more than any other comment I think I resent uh, regret making. As I said, I think I smelled a bit of Frodo uh, when um, you know at the end of my last lap when I was trying to. Uh, Sterling's time, and um, of course, uh, Ferrodo means you know, sort of style of learning. And um, of course, I said, I think it's the brakes because you know, I was really trying to maximum 
to, um, to get the, the fastest lap. And uh, of course, what did they do? They interpreted that it was a clutch. No, there was a clutch. I know whether it was a clutch or not. You know, because, uh, um, you, know, you have to um, So what they did, they changed the clutch overnight. And uh, on the Ferrari, without any reference to me, which I suppose uh, there's no obligation to that, but when I only expressed some uh, concern about this snow of Froda, um, they didn't so discuss it with me. Perfectly with their rights not to. And um, of course, what happened is uh, I started the race, and um, within 100 meters, the clutch had burnt out. Mm -hmm. So either it was faulty, faulty clutch, or they fitted it uh, incorrectly. <coughs> and um, I never, ever, ever burned out a clutch on a car in the whole of my racing career. And uh, as Phil Hill finished second in that race, and I think I mean Phil every time we we finish the race. Um, yeah. Well, nevertheless, you arrived at the final round of the World Championship. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In at Watkins Glen. Yes. Uh, no, it's uh, at that uh, US Grand Prix. The Sebring. Sebring, of course, yes. it's the yes. Sebring, right? Yeah. And you were still in with the chance of yeah. winning the World Championship. And I don't know if we've got the next one. I'm Sterling Brown myself. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so there, that, that is Sebring. Uh, yes, it is. The significant thing here is that Sterling retired, Brown only finished fourth. Yeah. So if you'd been able to keep going, you would have been world champion, virtually without doubt. But in the early laps, you were hit from behind by your own teammate, Ron Trips. And you then had to make a decision, yes. not knowing if your car had been damaged. Yes. Should you keep going, yeah. or should you make a pit stop? Yes. Well, I don't know whether you want to know the background to that before we come to that point, because uh, the thing is, Harry Shell was a, a bit of a joker. He was an um, Anglo-American, uh, no, not Anglo-Franco-American, and um, he was you know, a bit of a joker. But the thing is, he did the lap, was credited with the lap for the. Uh, US Grand Prix 59 uh, that you never ever did because this was a terrible circuit. I wish it had been um, uh, the uh, other circuit you mentioned, the Grand Prix, because this was a dreadful aerodrome circuit marked out with cones. And Harry Sheldon, in fact, cut off one of these corners, you know, just bypassed one of these cones. And he was credited with uh, a lap that he never ever did, um, you know, seven seconds out. And, uh, I was in fact third fastest uh, in practice, and uh, Sterling was first, I was second, and uh, I was third fastest uh, on a totally unsuitable circuit for the Ferrari this afternoon. And uh, he was credited with this lap, he never ever did, and there was a big hoo-ha on the start line. And uh, he, uh, uh, you know, he didn't sort of say, no, I caught I cut the corner. And the officials let him get away with it. Uh, Robert Saloni, who was the team manager of Ferrari, did his best. I didn't interfere because I didn't think it was for the driver to, uh, and I could know more. Uh, I couldn't say more than Saloni could say anyway. And um, so they upheld his uh, claim that he did his fastest lap. The net result was, instead of me being on the front row next to the Brabham, next to the Sterling and Brabham, 
Tony and Jack. Um, I was moved to the second row, which may not seem to the end of the world, uh, and I was moved to the second row and on the other side of the grid, in fact, uh, beside, uh, behind Sterling. Uh, uh, but the trouble is it put me in front of uh, Bon Fritz, um, who was known to, uh, to, to have his uh, incidents, and um, he was most concerned in trying to get himself a permanent place in the Ferrari Formula 1 team. And uh, here he was right behind me as a result of uh, uh, Harishel insisting on this uh, at that time. He was a leader behind me. I think he made the simple uh, 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 conclusion that uh, the best way to try and get a team, uh, team place with Ferrari would be to follow the team leader, which as I was as, as number one. And uh, so that's exactly what he did. He followed me so closely on the first lap, he, he uh, ran me on the back side. <laughs> and um, so I had to pull off and, um, and uh, try and um, decide what was, uh, you know, what to do about the situation. So um, anyway, uh, it was not immobilize the car. I managed to, um, to um, I didn't lose the engine, and uh, I managed to start, and I had half a lap to get back to the pits. And um, in that half lap, I, I, you know, I, I must have seemed like a year long because I had to decide whether I honored my, my guarantee to myself, don't ever race a car that is mechanically, that is mechanically below its ability to race at its maximum speed, should I, uh, do that, or should I go in and check whether this car is fit to drive or not? Half an hour is not very long to sort of try and decide, but I'm very proud of myself to in fact decide and make myself, and that was it. I had to make myself go in the pits to have this car checked uh, to uh, satisfy myself that I wasn't going to make another, a third and possibly fatal mistake, persevering with a car that wasn't fit to be uh, <coughs> race, race to the maximum. So um, I went in, and um, in actual fact, you know, there was nothing major wrong. But you see, that leaves you the thought, you know, afterwards, oh, if only I had, if only I had done this. So it's no use reliving things, I would do the same thing again. And it was because of those two incidents we covered at some length earlier on that made me do that. And um, that cost me the championship because, as you already mentioned, uh, Sterling retired and Jack uh, ran out of petrol, which is something he, he did, you know, I wouldn't say regularly, but <laughs> he did from time to time because he would always squeeze out an extra gallon of petrol, you know, take a gallon of petrol out of the car to get the, lake, the, the weight down, so he ran out of petrol. Sterling was out, so uh, if we're not for that, you know, I wouldn't be world champion. But this is it found me. But of course, there were other occasions in that uh, season which you may not wish to go into, where uh, the cat, I would have had enough points anyway without that unfortunate uh, uh, contretemps, uh, which was indirect responsibility of Harry Shell. Tony, we could continue. We've got so much that we haven't even touched on. Our time is running out. Uh, we haven't talked about your sports car racing uh, in 
particularly with, with Aston Martin, you also drove um, when you were with Ferrari um, in sports cars. Your Formula One career continued with BRM and Yeoman Credit. You'll have to come back and give us another um, hour or so of your time so we can get on with that. Ladies and gentlemen, Tony Brooks. There'll be some questions, so usual rules of engagement. If you've got the microphone, <clears throat> you can ask a question. So, hands up any volunteers. We always start slow. Okay, sir. I'll get to you. generally agreed, isn't it, that there had been a race, uh, Archie had dominated that particular class of short yes. distance, uh, yeah, was race, 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 race. Race. he yeah. was beaten uh, a week before, a couple of weeks before, by Master and Gregory in a similar car, and I think at Spa he was absolutely determined to stay at there with Master and Gregory, so maybe he was riding on the limit. Yes, over the limit, yes. Yeah. Okay, we've got another question here, gentlemen. Another question. Yeah, Thanks very much. Hello. Hello. Tony, you won on the Nordschleifer. Could you ever say that you have learned it perfectly? It's surely impossible, isn't it? You you you, you won on the Nordschleifer Nürburgring. I was. You you won yes. on, on on the Nürburgring. Yes. On the Nordschleifer. Yes. And in could you, uh, the could you Indeed. Yes, I also won uh, at uh, in, in the sports car races. Yeah. yeah. So you, you, you did an enormous number of miles yes. on the Nordschleifer. Could you say yeah. 
that you ever really were able to learn it, all those myriad corners. Yes. Well, you knew what was coming up, but I mean, uh, there are said to be, I don't know who counted it, but I said to be 175 corners there. So there's no way that you'd ever go around and, uh, uh, and think that you'd uh, uh, take every corner uh, at the maximum limit of adhesion, uh, the fastest uh, pace, there's no way. But I mean, no, I certainly knew uh, what was coming up. And uh, uh, a principle that I had when I went to a new circuit, and of course absolutely essential to the ring, was that um, I would find the corners that you couldn't mistake, identified definitely. And um, I would learn uh, sex, I would, um, as soon as I got to a corner I definitely knew, I would then learn that section until we got to another corner which I definitely knew. Because otherwise, if you didn't uh, have uh, corners that you couldn't mistake, you would never get round to learning the whole circuit if you follow me. Uh, so, being, and of course, if you took the wrong corner, you thought this was a corner or something else, you could have a very bad accident. So, uh, learning the circuit by uh, in sections, not sections in that you know, doing one at a time, they're doing the sections by continuous uh, uh, circulating uh, on the circuit, uh, but saying, oh, yes, I know what this is, and now this, 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 or oh, I know what this is. And then, if you had made a mistake on that section between the two corners that you and identified for sure, you know, next time round, you would correct that. Thank you. Yeah, hold on, sir. There's a question no. right down here. Steve is bringing you the mic. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> How did you get on with Mike Hawthorne? How did you get on with Mike Hawthorne? Oh, well, fine. I mean, we drove, uh, we drove together in, um, in, in, in BRM in, uh, in, in 56. And, uh, we, we never had an argument, uh, and um, I didn't have any problem with him, but um, I have a principle of trying to get on with everybody, you know, and, uh, and it was usually successful, and um, I didn't have any problem with him, but I mean, uh, you learn how to, how to deal with uh, people, I think, and you uh, learn what to do and what not to do. Um, so he was very cheerful and, uh, you know, very... Uh, very quick driver, and um, uh, we had a lot of trouble with with me on because the cars were really, uh, you know, just uh, not uh, not not up to. But it's interesting. I mean, you you have just used a wonderful adjective, um, <coughs> a very polite adjective to describe my author. You said he was cheerful. Yeah. <laughs> here is a man who would think nothing of pouring a pint of beer over another driver's head after yeah. a race as sort of part of his general cheerfulness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you are, you are never, a very different I, character. I never, went, I never went to a pub with Mike, so maybe, that's <laughs> maybe you had to see him in a pub to see him where he really, where he really was, but I, I'm being truthful Fair in saying that I, I personally didn't have a problem, but you know, I do pride myself on you know, trying to get on with people. And, uh, I think we've, we, got, yeah. we've probably time. got time for one, one last question. Work, and then I'll be over to you, sir. Stay quiet. Thanks for a great presentation, gentlemen. Uh, Tony, could you tell us who the greatest driver you consider you raced against was and why? Who was the greatest driver that you raced against? The greatest driver. The greatest driver. Greatest driver. Oh, well, that's no problem, Fangio. 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 
And what, what was so great about him? What was so great about him? Well, what was it? I mean, he was physically fantastic, you know, great, fantastic anticipation, fantastic judgment, and so on. But he he had a tremendous sense of balance uh, in um, uh, you know driving a car. Certainly, in those days was very much about balance. You had to synchronise yourself with the car and, um, you know, in drifting. Uh, when you were drifting a car in the 50s, um, it was, uh, you know, Spa was a classic place for, uh, for, for uh, you drifted all the circuits, but the Spa was a the classic one. And, uh, you know, you, you'd go in wide uh, to a corner and um, you'd put the car into a drift. A drift means that all four tires are sliding relative to the road and you have the car at, at an angle and you drift uh, on the line you have chosen so that you clip, not literally touch, clip the apex of that corner and this drift which couldn't expire be 130, 140 miles an hour, this drift would just clip the apex of the corner and you would have to judge it with just delicate control of the steering and the accelerator so that the drift run out of run out of movement to the left just before you reach the uh, outside of the circle on the left hand side of the corner. So you were driving um, uh, on as if on a tightrope, almost by telepathy. You know, it's just such a delicate thing. And I mean it was so exciting uh, actually drifting. And this car and you are just one with the car. And driving and drifting on this uh, on this this, uh, uh, this tightrope, as it were, and uh, as I say, you're not really having to do much with the steering wheel and accelerator because you set it up correctly for that particular corner. But uh, and it's almost with mental telepathy you're getting the car to move <coughs> in fractions to ensure that you go through that corner on the best line at the best possible speed. And Sanjo was particularly good at that? Uh, oh yes he was, he was, but um, uh, he, um, uh, yes, he, he didn't, he didn't ever have to drive more than, deliberately more than 10 tenths, whereas there some drivers who didn't do that, and they got away with it. But um, I think obviously Sterling was very, very, very close to him. But I think Sterling had to try just that a little bit harder, make that extra effort beyond perhaps his natural limits, whereas Fangio didn't. Sterling always regards Fangio as the greatest. Yes. Um, perhaps a final note, because I know I'm, I'm getting signals from Steve, and we are going to have to wrap up now, but a final note which... Um, Tony may or may not have heard, but somebody asked Sterling Moss um, if he were the team manager of the Aston Martin sports car team, where you needed a pair of drivers for each car, who would the, if he had the choice of any drivers, who would he have as his number one pairing? And he said, no question, I would have Tony Brooks and Jim Clark. Now that would have been a hell of a good team. <laughs> and sadly, we are now going to have to stop. Can we have a big hand, please, ladies
but uh, we are where we are. Um, I'd like you to welcome the Chairman of the Brooklyn's Museum Trust, Sir Jerry Asher, to join me here to do some presentations. So, can I start the bidding at £25, please? Any offers at £25? Yes, sir. 